You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 31, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you so much for joining me after our long three or four week break here. I had to take a little time for the family and for myself to recharge the batteries and kind of get things going again. So we're going to leap into 2019 here and begin another full season. And I'm still planning on trying to get about one episode a week. We'll kind of see how it goes, but that's still the plan for now. And so this is going to be the first time back. And we're going to be talking about death today and brain death. Is there a difference? Are they the same? Uh, we're going to try and get into that a little bit with Dr. Alan Schumann, who's an expert uh, in death, and he's a bit at the forefront of the controversy with the designation of brain death and whether that we can use that as a designation for death itself. Because we don't use the designation for brain death for any other organisms uh, outside of humans that I'm aware of. I don't think people use the brain death designation for their their pets or uh, animals out in the wild or anything else. And so uh, what does that mean for us from an ethical standpoint, uh, practical standpoint, and then how comfortable are we with the designation? So if you are brain dead, uh, are you actually dead? And then if we accept the fact that brain death is a, is a reasonable way of assigning someone a death, even though their their organs and the rest of their body may be functioning properly, are we comfortable that when we make the diagnosis of brain death that we're correct and we're accurate? And so those are the things we're going to get into today. I am going to a little bit more of a preface with this for the beginning of the show, simply because I did not do a good enough job during the interview of fleshing out, I guess, where I was trying to go and what we were trying to um, achieve at this episode. So... I apologize for that, but and uh, also there was uh, the internet went down in the middle of the show, and so there'll be a discordant question where I say I'm not quite sure what we were talking about, <laughs> and it's because we lost the internet for a little bit, and it was all entirely my end, and so for that, first world problems, right? I hope that by the end of the show, you'll have uh, got a better understanding of the controversy that exists that is, I wouldn't say brewing, but certainly has been out there for the last... 10 to 15 years, maybe longer. It's kind of hard to know exactly when, but there have been some recent neurologic cases that have been a little more concerning. Uh, there's a lot of literature that you can read. There'll be a number of links at the paradox.com slash 031 that you can jump down the rabbit hole and you can get lost uh, in trying to find the find an answer, or I guess you'll certainly find lots of controversies as we try and better understand what death is and the ethical implications of brain death, because it obviously affects transplants. That's the most prominent one. Uh, but also, you know, when you can comfortably re- remove, a, uh, when you can remove support for someone, and uh, legally, the implications for hospitals and families and, you know, whatnot. And so 
these are all important things. And I think it's important to sort of figure out in our own minds what death is and whether brain death is a reasonable alternative to have, or or I guess a, a further designation to have in addition to just having the term death. Is there a brain death, I guess, is that is in the sense that we are talking about not the brain itself as much as we're talking about an organism or person who no longer has brain activity. They may have, um, the brain still might be present and they may still otherwise be fine in the sense their heart's still beating, their kidneys still work and et cetera, et cetera, but that their brain function is, is no longer uh, present. And so is that person dead? And I think is really the real question. And so most of the time when we talk about brain death, we are talking about the person who is declared brain dead, not the actual death of a brain, because those can sometimes be different as we'll get into the, some of the more nuances during the show. Uh, but I'd really like to thank uh, Dr. Alan Schumann, who uh, joined me for this interview. He's an expert on this. He's, again, at the forefront of the controversy, and he is uh, someone you can find plenty of more information, interviews. He gave a lecture uh, that we'll talk, that I'll reference to you in the show, again, it'll be in the show notes page, uh, which is, I think, very well worth watching, and uh, the further discussion on, you know, what, what the implications are of this case that we'll talk about with Jahai McMath. But without further ado, I'd like to thank you for joining me and enjoy the show. Uh, welcome. I'm with Dr. Alan Schumann, who's a professor emeritus of pediatrics and neurology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at the UCLA in Southern California. And today we're going to be discussing brain death. And Dr. Schumann is an expert in this, and he's had a well-published in, uh, I guess it's probably fair to say that your definition of brain death is a bit different, or I should probably back up a little bit and say your definition of death is probably different than what is the commonly accepted, is that fair? Um, uh, no, I don't think that's fair. My, defi- okay. my definition of death is pretty much the same as Jim Burnett's definition, uh, which is the irreversible cessation of functioning of the organism as a whole. Or, or better okay. put, the irreversible cessation of the organism as a whole. Okay. And so... To set the table, we'll talk about briefly about the case of Jahai McMath. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that name correctly, yes. but she's a. Uh, I think she was uh, nine at the time when she, um, from a complications from a tonsillectomy. A number of course events. She became. Um, they had problems with their airway, and she was she was starved for oxygen. Correct. She was thir- and oh, thirteen. Okay, she was thirteen at the time, and. And uh, she suffered. She suffered injury because of uh, problems with uh, oxygenation. And at the time, she was evaluated by a neurologist at the hospital, and I believe it was in California. And uh, they determined that she was brain dead. And her family did not agree with the diagnosis, and they took her to New Jersey, which has, uh, which is one of a few states that allows you to, um, uh, to continue care for people who are for on religious and conscientious reasons. Is that, is that correct? And then from there, it, there's obviously a malpractice case involved. And then you went to evaluate her or you looked at the, um, some of the video evidence from the family. And so before we go into the specific case, why don't you describe to us what the current concept is of brain death? Because I think most people are generally familiar with that. My audience is probably 
half medical professionals and half lay people, the lay public. And so why don't you go briefly into what the definition of brain death is right now, and then um, we'll kind of go on from there. Well, just the term brain death is is kind of un, unfortunate from a linguistic point of view uh, because it could be understood to mean either death of the brain, uh, like necrosis of the brain as an organ, without implying anything about death of the patient, or it can mean death of the patient by virtue of neurologic criteria. So it can mean either of those two things, and it often gets blurred and and uh, leads to sloppy thinking. But um, if, if we understand it to mean uh, the death of the patient by neurologic criteria, which is how I think most people understand it, uh, then uh, the, the idea is uh, that total destruction of the brain or total non-function of the brain that's irreversible uh, is, is the death of the patient. Now, why that should be, uh, people have been arguing about since the whole idea was introduced in 1968 by the Harvard Committee. So some people maintain that the reason uh, that is death of a patient is because uh, the brain is the location of personhood or brain function produces personhood. And so if you destroy that, then you destroy the person. So the person is dead. Uh, that is, uh, that doesn't require the whole brain to be destroyed. So that just requires irreversible loss of consciousness, essentially. And so this, uh, this understanding of the rationale for brain death is uh, often called the higher brain death concept. So another rationale that uh, has been more the standard is uh, that brain death is death because it involves loss of uh, integration of the organism uh, so the organism is no longer a unified whole, so it's no longer an organism, so the organism has died. Um, that is probably the still the mainstream rationale for brain death. Uh, but there are many reasons to to doubt that 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 actually uh, <laughs> works as a rationale right and so if i could just summarize i guess real briefly what your what your the contentions are is that the brain is seen as sort of an organizing um the integrative part it's the sort of the supercomputer of the body and without your without neurologic activity or brain function the body is unable to sort of survive on its own right it's unable you're unable to breathe you're unable to you know get food nourishment and um and that if you lose the function of the brain, that the, the body and the organs and the cellular functions will cease to be. I mean, that was the, that's pretty much the, the thought of the integrative model. Is that correct with right. the, right. Yeah. And so, and so, uh, that was, I guess you, as you were saying from the sixties through the early two thousands, that was kind of the prominent view of the brain. Right. 
Right. It was a mainstream view. And, and, uh, and you presented, and then you presented a case, which I'm sure was well known to many at, of TK, uh, which is someone who essentially was in a vegetative state for a couple decades, I believe. Uh, and, he, he was, and he was not in a vegetative state. Okay. So he, he was brain dead. He, he, he had no brain. His and was that known ahead of time? Was destroyed by bacterial meningitis at age four. And scans, uh, MRI scans later showed uh, <clears throat> that he had no brain. Right, and so then, if you're if you're a subscriber to the integrative model, you would say that the rest of the body would be unable to function. I mean, there would, and so what happened despite this person having absolutely no brain? Well, what happened was he he uh, continued living as a as an organism. <laughs> <laughs> and and right, and and I guess he grew, and he had hormonal changes, and he was able to maintain what we call homeostasis, which is just regulating your temperature and sort of your right. he, uh, biochemical. He, he did grow. Um, he, um, most of that time he was actually at home. He wasn't even in the hospital. So he was, he was on a ventilator. He received uh, tube feedings and uh, nursing care. And that was about it. Right. And so, and so then that obviously is not possible if that if the the brain is truly the critical for the body to the body cells and organs to to function properly right. but but it, it must be pointed out that that tk was the most extreme such case but there there have been many cases of prolonged survival and brain death reported in the medical literature right i mean it's it's sort of like um if you were to, uh, you could make a statement saying it's impossible for humans to live underwater uh, without any sort of uh, additional, you know, oxygen tanks and things like that. And then you find someone who was living underwater for two years and was and were fine. Then clearly our definition is cannot possibly, there's got to be something that we're missing, right? right. And so it, it sort of be like along the same lines, right? This is, this would, this would prove that it's not, although it's probably very important and crucial, as we know, our brains are very important. It's not the only like it's not 100 percent essential i guess or critical for the for body functions right and and i think it's it's also useful and important conceptually to uh, look at the more acute brain death cases which everybody is much more familiar with uh, how they present in the icu during the first day or two of brain death and they're much more unstable than TK or, or these other chronic uh, cases were. So uh, the instability of these acute cases is why for a long time it was assumed that the brain is necessary for integrated functioning of the organism. Uh, mm -hmm. But when you examine uh, the details of the physiology in brain death, or the pathophysiology, you realize that uh, acutely there are uh, typically multi-system uh, damage and, and dysfunction that explain a lot of the instability 
rather than merely absence of brain function. So uh, the common cause of uh, brain death is uh, cardiac arrest. And that damages uh, the brain due to lack of oxygen and blood flow, but it also damages kidneys and liver and heart itself. And um, same thing with massive trauma, which is a uh, another common cause of brain death. A massive trauma, like uh, being smashed by an automobile, uh, and that will also damage many other organs or, or could damage many other organs. So you have uh, instability uh, from the multi-systemic damage. And yet this is ascribed only to the lack of brain function. So that, that's not logical. <laughs> right. Um, right. You, you, also, you also have uh, a phenomenon called spinal shock. So when the, when the brain is... Uh, destroyed, then the it, it's kind of like severing the spinal cord at, at the top of the cervical cord, as far as the cord functioning below. And when you sever the cord, uh, the cord goes into what's called spinal shock below the, the level of injury. So in addition to all these other systemic dysfunctions, you have spinal shock, which uh, paralyzes the autonomic nervous system. It causes uh, intestinal ileus, uh, hypotension can cause cardiac arrhythmias. Um, it causes muscle hypo hypotension or hypotonia. Mm -hmm. Um, so causes absence of tendon reflexes. And if these patients are supported, uh, then over the next few weeks, spinal shock resolves. And what you see is stabilization of blood pressure and so on. So many of these instabilities uh, spontaneously resolve uh, because of a combination of recovery of the damaged organs, heart, kidneys, liver, etc., and recovery of spinal shock, recovery from spinal shock, I should say. Um, and that time course uh, parallels the time course of stabilization of chronic brain death patients. So it's, it's not logical to ascribe all the acute instabilities to merely lack of brain function. Right. I mean, that makes sense perfectly. Um, so let's discuss the case of Jahai McMath, um, which is how I found out about you. Uh, I guess... Uh, if you could just briefly talk about how you got involved or, uh, and then your analysis and, um, and sort of the implications of, of what your findings were. Well, I got involved because um, almost from the get-go, uh, her case was in the news media. <laughs> so, so I followed that with interest like everybody else. 
and uh, after she was transferred to New Jersey and started uh, to stabilize, after predictions that she was imminently going downhill and was going to succumb to cardiac arrest and her body would decay and, and everything like that, um, all those predictions proved wrong once she started being treated like a comatose patient rather than like a corpse. And so in New Jersey, she did stabilize like many of these chronic brain death patients. So I started to get interested in her case from the point of view of someone with an interest in chronic brain death. Because I had written uh, an article about that uh, back in 1998 and continued to collect cases, extraordinary cases of chronic brain death. So uh, in the spring, uh, I approached the family and uh, around the same time, they began to report that she was responding to commands, to simple motor commands. So at first I thought that, well, this is a family in denial. Right. And they're misinterpreting spinal reflexes as, as volitional which does often happen with, with families in denial. Mm -hmm. and, and they realized that nobody was going to believe them if they didn't make videos of these responses. So they started making videos. Um, they started to notice that Jahai tended to be responsive when her heart rate was above 80. And if it was below 80, she tended not to respond. So I thought that was a curious observation because it kind of implies that there's some inner state going on, state changes with a, a more arousal, aroused state and a less aroused state that's reflected in the heart rate. Which you would not expect in someone who is comatose, for instance. Well, you could expect it in someone comatose, but not someone brain dead. Sure. Okay. Right. Because comatose would still respond to painful stimuli and sometimes, at least physiologically. Yeah. Dep depends on on um, what part of the brain is injured causing the coma. Sure. So, so um, I began uh, receiving these videos, and the more that that they sent me, the more convinced I became that, uh, my goodness, these really are uh, our responses. That, first of all, they, the type of movements that she made were not any kind of involuntary movement described in patients with high spinal cord injury. So they're not movements known to be made by the autonomous spinal cord. And they were anatomically specific to what body part was commanded. So if they said, move your right arm, she moved her right arm. And move your left foot, she moved her left foot. So uh, 
it wasn't 100% accurate, uh, but uh, much more than you could explain by chance. So, so then I, I became really interested in her case because uh, if she really was responding to commands, then she wasn't permanently unconscious. So she, she would have to be inwardly conscious during these periods of responsiveness, which would place her outside of the category of coma and in the category of what's called minimally conscious state, which has uh, variable uh, levels of arousal and can have intermittent responsiveness. So that uh, threw a monkey wrench into the whole diagnosis of brain death. Obviously, if she's intermittently responsive, then uh, she's not dead and neither is her brain totally destroyed. Right. Uh, so uh, in September, of that uh, of that same year when she was transferred, um, she had some studies done at Rutgers University Medical Center, including an MRI scan, which uh, remarkably showed uh, a lot of gross preservation of her brain structures. So, in all the chronic brain death cases that I have uh, later scans on, the brain is totally liquefied. So it's replaced by just fluids and membranes and just a, a jumble of tissues, calcifications. Um, so her brain didn't look anything like that, which kind of confirmed that uh, there was, in fact, uh, not total destruction of her brain <laughs> right. back, back uh, at the time of her misfortune. Um, so how is it possible that she fulfilled all the diagnostic tests for brain death back then? Um, she even had a, a radionuclide blood flow scan that showed no blood flow to the brain. So if there's truly no blood flow to the brain, then the brain will become totally necrosed. So what her MRI scan demonstrated was that the radionuclide scan was uh, simply insensitive for distinguishing low blood flow from no blood flow. Mm -hmm. Because obviously she had some blood flow to the brain, even if it couldn't be detected. Right. So, so I, I think her case is important. Uh, the, the way it all evolved, it's important not so much uh, for any implications about the concept of brain death, but rather uh, for its implications about the reliability of the diagnostic criteria. Sure. 
because the, the criteria are a physical exam, right, with the loss of reflexes and responses to stimulus, either light or touch or what we just term noxious stimuli, right, painful, like a pinch or something like that. Uh, and then this radionuclide scan, which is, uh, which uses, um, which tracks blood cells and tracks blood flow. And essentially, um, clearly she has some sort of flow into her brain, but this scan showed none at that time. And so your contention and by the evidence set forth, the only conclusion can be there's, there's barely enough, but there's something, but it's undetectable, or at least at that time it was undetectable to that scan. And so... And then you also have to have an EEG, I believe. Also, is that also part of the criteria now? Yeah. That's uh, well, it's it's optional. Okay. Um, and so is the radionuclide scan optional? So the the criteria uh, are purely clinical. In okay. The American Academy of Neurology criteria, and you're only required to use these ancillary tests if there's some um, some doubt in your clinical exam or some part of the clinical exam couldn't be accomplished for some reason. Okay. And so what, we, so what we have here is, is a, a concern that the, she had a clinical exam that showed that she was, her, her brain had no function. She had other tests, including what is considered, I guess the gold standard now, the radionuclide scan that also showed that there was no, fu no function for the brain. Uh, and these are clearly scan doesn't show function; it shows blood flow. Correct, right? Blood flow, it, which suggests that there has to be function at some on some level, right? If there's some blood flow. Well, not necessarily. Okay. So you you could, you know, in in principle, and and this has also been reported, you could have a totally necrosed brain, where um, initially. There's no blood flow, but then the intracranial pressure decreases and blood flow returns oh. to the brain, but the brain is still totally necrotic. Sure. Okay. So presence of blood flow doesn't imply presence of function. Although I see, but, but lack of function, lack of flow would suggest no function. Right. Right. So, so I, I think Jahai's case is uh, the first indirect proof of a hypothesis of the Brazilian neurologist uh, Cicero Coimbra regarding what he called global ischemic penumbra. So uh, as you know, and many of the listeners surely know, uh, in the stroke field, um, when there's a a stroke, there's a, a central core that's necrotic because it didn't get any blood flow. And around that is uh, a, a kind of donut shaped uh, area of decreased blood flow where the tissue is really vulnerable. It's just on the margin of becoming necrotic, but it's, it's also salvageable. And the whole goal of stroke therapy is to save that ischemic penumbra region because you can't do anything with the already necrotic core. Right. Now, uh, with the ischemic penumbra, there is just enough blood flow 
to prevent necrosis, but not enough blood flow to support synaptic function. And Coimbra hypothesized that in the pathophysiology of brain death, when the blood flow is decreasing from normal to zero, it has to pass through this range of ischemic penumbra. Mathematically, it has to. Sure. And when it does, the entire brain will be in a situation of just enough blood flow to prevent necrosis, but not enough blood flow to allow any function. And if you examine that patient at that time, uh, the patient would fulfill all the criteria for brain death because there's no brain function. And if mm -hmm. an EEG, it would be flat because there's no synaptic function. But uh, nevertheless, the brain is potentially salvageable. Right. Um, which uh, doesn't mean that it would necessarily be salvageable back to normal. But, but could be prevented from going all the way to total necrosis. Sure. And, and that's why you see people with strokes who recover uh, some functions at some point after the shock, sort of, I guess, of that, the, the, those areas of the brain return to function. Right, right. So, so I, I think what happened with Jahai was that she was in this global ischemic penumbra. And the... That's why she fulfilled the clinical criteria for brain death. Her EEGs were flat at that time. And uh, the radionuclide scan was simply not sensitive enough to pick up this low level of flow. Uh, so I, I think her case is really important uh, by emphasizing not just a theoretical possibility, but that um, seems actually to happen. Right. And, and I think probably it's fair. It's probably important to note that this is, this is not the typical, obviously any close to a, a typical case of ischemia to brain in, in this sort of situation. Right. I mean, these are extraordinary cases, but they they highlight our understanding or lack of understanding of, of the brain function and the physiology, I suppose, of, right. of how things work. Well, what's extraordinary about her case is that the uh, family fought so much to keep her going <clears throat> and succeeded in that fight. I think you were just talking about what you think that, what Jahai's, um, about the penumbra and what this means. I guess uh, what it means is that the, the current diagnostic criteria cannot distinguish between global ischemic penumbra and brain death. And the fact that that Jahai's case is is so extraordinary and and cases like it are so rare doesn't make it um, any less important. Right. The reason it's so rare is because it's rare for families to uh, fight to have their loved one maintained indefinitely on life support after a diagnosis of brain death. So 99.9% .9 of patients diagnosed as brain dead either have a life support discontinued or they become organ donors. So 
the fact that instances like Jahai are so rare is not reassuring that the diagnostic criteria are valid. I see. So, so in, in, um, well, I guess I would say Jahai's case is different in that we have established there's some sort of uh, brain activity. But um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that we're looking at, when we look at, as physicians, we have to at some times declare death. Uh, and so what is death, right? And so one criteria that we've been using recently is that if as soon as brain function is gone, that that qualifies as death, even though you can have your cellular integrity, your organs are still functioning. That's to your contention that brain death is, you, you can't have two deaths, right? You, you're either alive or you're dead um, for most organisms. And so you can't have, no one talk, goes around talking about kidney death. I mean, that's just kidney failure, right? Then you go on dialysis or something like that. So um, what, what are the implications, I guess? I guess, you know, there's a philosophical aspect to this or a bioethical concern um, on death, but what are the, what are the practical implications for, um, for what we're talking about here for brain death? Well, the obvious practical implication has to do with transplantation. If it, if it weren't for transplantation, um, there would be no need to even have the concept of brain death. And so then, um, and that's and that was happened in the '60s, right? That's when the sort of the, the function was, or the the definition was developed in in trying to figure out how to maintain viable organs for someone who is, I guess you'd say, an individual who's not salvageable. I guess it'd be sort of uh, one term. Right. Well, in in the '60s, uh, the the Harvard committee uh, um, that kind of got the ball rolling in 1968. Uh, express concern also about uh, overpopulating ICUs with uh, patients with uh, hopeless neurologic prognosis. Um, uh, they were also concerned about uh, the legality of turning off ventilators at that time mm -hmm. uh, and thought that, uh, well, if the patient is already legally recognized as dead, then obviously there's no concern about turning off the ventilator. So uh, there were other concerns back then uh, besides transplantation. But as things have evolved, uh, really transplantation is the only thing that uh, depends a lot on brain death, being death. Right. And so... <clears throat> Uh, I guess the first question would be if if uh, if we then change our change our definition said that we need to have if we no longer accept brain death as a designation for death, how does that does that it does that end pretty much all? I mean, outside of living related transplants, where, like a kidney or something, it pretty much ends the transplant process, right? Outside of you know tissue and stuff. Well, I don't think it's uh, that radical, because uh, since since there is this uh, ever increasing demand for organs, uh, that even the 
the population of diagnosed brain dead patients um, is insufficient to meet. Um, other approaches such as uh, donation after uh, circulatory death uh, have been um, perfected and continue to, to develop. So, uh, of course, uh, every patient diagnosed as brain dead uh, <clears throat> would ipso facto be a candidate for donation after a circulatory death. Sure. So, so it, it wouldn't uh, end all transplantation if, if brain death was recognized as not death after all. Do you find that most of the um, most of the resistance it comes from the transplant community uh, to to I guess looking looking again sort of at the definition of brain death? Well, certainly the, the transplant community, uh, but also uh, physicians in general who who uh, want to promote the the good that comes from transplantation. Um, and uh, they figure, well, these, even if these patients are not strictly speaking biologically dead, they're, quote, as good as dead, unquote. And, and you wouldn't be harming them by just ending their lives and, and making some good out of uh, this tragedy by giving life to others. So there's there's a lot of that kind of consequentialist thinking that uh, motivates a lot of uh, people to to want to maintain the status quo. Let's say. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then, so <clears throat> the other question I guess I have is, um, I I feel on some level it is a it is a uh, there is a philosophical. Uh, aspect to this, right? Because if if you believe that the personhood exists within the mind, um, then as soon as that is gone, if you had total necrosis of your brain and brainstem, let's say, then the personhood is gone, right? And and I, I bring this up only because there have been some headlines recently. I don't know how viable this is, but there is a surgeon claiming that he can do head transplants. I'm sure you've seen this. Um, and uh, I, I guess the que- I guess the question is, you know, who is that if you transplant a head? <laughs> Whose body is that? Uh, you know, is this, is a person the person who had the head that's put to the new body, or what do you? How do you feel about that? Robert White did this with monkeys back in the '60s, mm-hmm. so presumably it's it's uh, theoretically possible with humans, <clears throat> but. Uh, I don't think philosophically that uh, proposes any challenge um, because if, if the brain is intact, then uh, the, the person uh, goes with the brain. So, so who, you know, if somebody were to transplant a, a head, then, then the new body would, would be a new body. It wouldn't be a new head. Okay. I mean, I think that's most people would agree with that, but 
I was curious what your thoughts are since you'd have essentially you have two living organisms that would be that would fuse at, at I would assume unless, I guess unless we were use a circulatory rest for the I don't I guess it becomes very complicated <laughs> at that level yeah I mean I don't think philosophically it would be any different from from transplanting a, a hand or a limb as just a, a larger chunk of tissue that, that would be trans <laughs> um <clears throat> And so where is the, where is this debate right now within the neurologic community? I mean, I, is there, is there any thoughts to re-examine this or to reopen this or is it, is it, are people just waiting until maybe another um, bioethics conference or something like that before they want to uh, readdress this? Well, I, I think the uh, neurologic community is much more, interested in in the um, diagnostic criteria aspect than the philosophical aspect. So I, I think the philosophical debate uh, is much more uh, in the bioethics community rather than the neurological community. Makes sense. I mean, I guess, and, and what is your, what is your sense for the, um, for the bioethicists, is this uh, is this a problem that they're seeing right now? Uh, I know you're in that the and I, all these links will be online at theparadox.com/slash zero thirty one with Dr. Schumann here. Uh, but your lecture you you gave to the one I watched where you're discussing the case of Jahai, but there are also a couple um, other people at, at Harvard bioethics discussion. Is this something that they're they're dealing with right now, or is this is this not at the forefront for the bioethics. Well, I, I don't know whether it's at the forefront, but it certainly is a hot topic in bioethics. Uh, uh, for a number of decades, people thought this was sort of a settled issue, uh, but uh, it obviously has become unsettled <laughs> and uh, people are talking a lot more about it than they had been. So, uh, I think the uh, the bioethics community is is more receptive to the philosophical uh, and empirical challenges than the the medical community is, <clears throat> uh, just because physicians tend to be pragmatic, and uh, and the, the philosophers tend to think more about. Uh, the underlying logic and coherence of the ideas. Yeah, sure. And I imagine there's theological concerns too. I mean, well, it, there are arguments made theologically too, uh, one way or the other. Is that, would that be, is that true too? Um, well, yes and no. Um, w within the major religions, there's divided opinion about brain death. Um, I, I think it's largely a, a philosophical and empirical issue, not a not a theological one. Well, I don't want to take up more of your time, so I really appreciate uh, the discussion today. It was very interesting. Is there anything else you'd like to add, or 
things you places people should visit to find out more about this issue? Um, well, there's a, a vast literature about it. So once you get started on that literature, uh, it will link to all kinds of other uh, articles. So. <laughs> Uh, almost no matter where you start there, you'll, you'll end up uh, getting the whole spectrum of ideas. Well, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for uh, making it through the technical issues we had in the middle of this, this, uh, this episode as well. Well, you're very welcome. And uh, thank you for 